Hey listeners, welcome back to Massage Noir Murders. I'm your host, Renetta Rideout. And as always, I'm here to retell the past and current cases of missing and or murdered Black women and girls. I choose to focus on the stories of my grossly marginalized community because the mainstream media ignores the stories of victimized Black people, women and girls in particular. These stories aren't deemed important and therefore are largely underreported. To my way of thinking, if we don't tell our own stories, then who will? It's for this reason Black women and girls will remain centered on this platform. Today's episode will dive into the murder of the beautiful, loving, and talented Jokisha Brown. While Jokisha was a good person with a kind heart, she died a brutal and cold death. The months leading up to her untimely death were devastating in many ways. Just a short while before she was murdered, she lost her brother, who ironically was also killed by gun violence. The loss of Jokisha was a blow to all who knew her, and she will forever be missed. Before I get into her story, I want to warn you that this episode will include rape and other triggering content. As always, listener discretion is advised. It was Friday, July 1st, 2016, and birthday girl Jokisha Brown, aka Keisha or Dynasty, was sitting in her car at a strip mall on the Cheshire Bridge Road in northeast Atlanta, Georgia. It was a hot and muggy southern night, and Jokisha was prepping for a night of celebration. The next day would be her 36th birthday, and the stunning model actress and mother to one son, sat in her black Mercedes SUV at the beauty salon she was at to get her makeup done. She had a lot to celebrate and was thankful and grateful to still be alive and well. Just earlier that day, Jokisha shared in one of her last Facebook posts that she was grateful to have another birthday. She wrote, quote, someone has a birthday tomorrow. I thank you, Lord, for truly showing up in my life, always. I pray every day you just order my footsteps and bless me with the wisdom to make great decisions in my life, end quote. She went on to talk about her late brother, Marlon, who'd just been killed four months prior after an altercation at a strip club in Jacksonville, Florida. Her sentiments about her brother were those of grief and longing. But at the same time, she celebrated life and recognized that it was fleeting. While Jokisha sat in her SUV just across the parking lot from the Red Snapper restaurant, David Espita was getting off of work and leaving the restaurant for the night. He recognized Jokisha in her car because she usually ordered from the Red Snapper while she was at the beauty salon upstairs. As David was leaving, he spotted a man lurking off to the side. David didn't recognize the man. In fact, he couldn't really make out exactly what the man looked like. David only took notice of the mysterious character because it was late in the evening, around 9 p.m., and the man seemed out of place. This man was just standing there in a poorly lit section of the strip mall, and his presence tickled David's spidey senses. 
He later told Crime Watch Daily that he noticed the man was well-dressed and specifically had noticeably nice sneakers. It was because of his attire that also made him stand out, because according to David, people hanging around in that area weren't usually dressed so well unless they were patronizing one of the businesses, like Jokisha. Even though David made these brief mental notes, he didn't dwell on the strange man. It was late, and he was eager to get home for the night. So he got into his car and drove away. Not long after David's departure, his coworker, Tong Bong, heard loud bangs that sounded like fireworks coming from the parking lot. Only he would quickly learn those weren't fireworks. Tong's coworker, who was also inside the restaurant, told him that the sounds they heard were gunshots. It was at that point when the two restaurant workers went outside to see what happened. Okay, as someone who grew up in South Central Los Angeles in the 90s, where gunshots were a regular occurrence on my block, or any block for that matter, I can't say I have ever been hard-pressed to go toward the sound of gunfire, but hey, that's exactly what Tong and his coworker did, along with everyone else in the strip mall that night. And what they found was a brutal and bloody scene. Tong told Crime Watch Daily that as soon as he and his co-workers stepped outside, they noticed a black Mercedes with the driver's window completely shattered. As they approached the damaged vehicle, they saw that a woman was in the driver's seat fighting to breathe. Within a few seconds, sadly, the woman took her last breath and passed away. It was soon discovered that the woman was Jokisha, and she'd been executed just hours shy of her 36th birthday. A bystander, who also came out after the shots were fired, took a cell phone video of Jokisha's friend, who'd been inside the beauty salon, discovering her beautiful friend's body. The scene is much like you can probably imagine, dark, grainy, and filled with the heartbreaking, guttural sounds of a friend in shock over the murder of a good friend. As you can probably guess, it didn't take long for police to arrive and for the investigation to begin. Jokisha had been shot 13 times through the passenger window at close range. Immediately, police asked the question on everyone's mind. Why did this happen? Of course, at that point, they were at ground zero, but they would soon discover that in the months leading up to Jokisha's murder, she'd been brutally attacked and feared for her life. Atlanta Police Major Adam Lee told various members of the press during a news conference that Jokisha's murder, quote, looks like a hit, end quote. So the million-dollar question here was, who would put a price on Jokisha's life? As the investigation ramped up, a person of interest would soon be revealed. Before her death, Jokisha was a very popular and well-liked up-and-coming actress. She was known for not only being a gorgeous beauty on the outside, but her heart and spirit were just as golden. According to her loved ones, to know her was to love her, and literally everyone did. She was described by a friend as being a person who, quote, filled the room with her smile when she walked in. Her smile was always so beautiful, and she was always so positive, end quote. Jokisha was the oldest of nine children and developed a strong persona as a caretaker from a young age. 
With so many younger siblings, she often found herself caring for them throughout their lives. When she eventually welcomed her own son, Jack, in 1998, it was no surprise that she was an amazing mother. It was known by all who knew Jokisha that Jack meant everything to her, and she spent her life making sure he knew it too. In 2010, Jokisha was thriving and vibing in her hometown city of Jacksonville, Florida. She developed quite a name for herself in the Black entertainment community, but she was very much a big fish in a small pond, so she decided to expand her horizons to ATL. She relocated to Duluth, Georgia, just a short 30-minute drive to the heart of Atlanta, where she obtained her real estate license and continued to pursue her entertainment career. On January 1st, 2010, Queen Pin, starring Jokisha as Ronnie, was released. This was Jokisha's second movie, but the most popular between the two. It was this role that further advanced her presence in the Black entertainment scene in Atlanta, and she went on to write, direct, and produce another project. Her stunning aesthetic and bubbly personality made her a crowd favorite among everyone she worked with, including popular entertainers like Lil Duval and Young Jock. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of background information about Jokisha outside of what I've mentioned already, you know, due to the usual lack of mainstream care about Black victims. I do know at some point, Jokisha began a relationship with rapper-producer Alfredo L. Capote. The man has a pretty cool name, but I'm not going to lie, I was pretty curious to know if he was Black. So you know I ran to Google. The quick search confirmed that he was indeed Black, and he's not only known for his music and cool name. Turns out Capote is not a good dude, but we'll get into that in a minute. So Jokisha and Capote began their relationship, and I'm sure at first, like most relationships, it started out cool. They both worked in the entertainment industry, so they connected with each other on that front. They were also a good-looking couple, which I imagine added a little je ne sais quoi to the relationship. Of course, this is just my assumption because, again, there's not much information available about their relationship. That said, I'm not sure when the relationship began to deteriorate, but at some point it did, and it became clear that the spark usually present in Jokisha's eyes was beginning to fade. Her friends would later make comments in a couple of interviews that Jokisha suffered through intimate partner abuse during her relationship with Capote. Now, I know you're probably thinking, again, with the domestic violence. Well, the reality is an astounding number of Black women suffer through intimate partner violence in their lives. As shared by Ujima, the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, a 2011 National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey showed that, quote, approximately 41% of Black women have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime, compared to 31% of white women, 30% of Hispanic women, and 15% of Asian or Pacific Islander women, end quote. If your mind isn't reeling from that revelation, here's some more info to hammer the nail in the coffin. The CDC reported that Black and Indigenous women suffer the highest rates of homicide, and more than half of those homicides are due to intimate partner violence, with Black women being most commonly killed by guns. 
So if you're wondering why all the cases I've discussed so far have to do with intimate partner violence and or intersect with gun violence, well, you should have your answer by now. Clearly, there's a major issue within the Black community as it pertains to our romantic relationships and our proximity and access to firearms. Sadly, the two collide often, resulting in more deaths like Jokisha and almost everyone else I've talked about on this podcast. It's sickening at best, and really something should be done about it on a systemic level. But as always, I digress. Anyway, Not many intimate details are known about Jokisha and Capote's relationship, except the ending of it was described as difficult for Jokisha. According to her friend Jordan Jackson, as reported in a BET article, Jokisha, quote, went through a very, very hard time with this breakup, end quote. Jordan went on to say that Jokisha consistently talked about the abuse she sustained and that she feared for her life. And from what I gather, She had good reason to be scared. On the morning of April 7th, 2016, Capote went to Jokisha's home that she shared with her 17-year-old son, Jack, for an alleged visit. A short while after Capote arrived, a masked assailant invaded Jokisha's home and bound and gagged her and Jack. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering where Capote was while Jack and Jokisha were being attacked. Well, wait no more. When the two victims were rendered defenseless, Capote confessed that this so-called home invasion was his brilliant idea, thus revealing why he wasn't also tied up. Apparently, he wanted a large sum of money he believed was at the house. Capote and the other man aggressively questioned Jack about where the money was, and of course Jack told them over and over again that he didn't know anything about any money. The two thugs then turned to Jokisha and Capote proceeded to savagely rape her at gunpoint. When the dehumanizing act was over, Capote and his accomplice abducted a battered and terrified Jokisha, leaving Jack bound at the house. Before they left, they made sure to threaten poor Jack by telling him he'd better not call the cops or they kill his mom. Obviously, a threat like that would scare any child into staying silent. Hours later, Jack managed to free himself from the restraints, but he did not call the police out of fear for his mom's life. The two men took Jokisha, still tied up, to a hotel located in Cobb County, a little under an hour west of Jokisha's home. Upon their arrival, the accomplice left Capote and Jokisha at the hotel, where she was repeatedly raped by Capote throughout her time in his custody. And of course, Capote was sure to keep that gun trained on her, tormenting her with it through the night. The next morning, on April 8th, Capote drove Jokisha two and a half hours south to Perry, Georgia. Now, according to the original Crime Stoppers Bolo, or Be on the Lookout, for Capote, he and Jokisha arrived at the second location in Perry. However, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or AJC, reported that before arriving at the house in Perry, Jokisha made a daring escape. According to the AJC, after surviving the abduction the day before, Jokisha saw a small window of opportunity to escape en route to the Perry home. As Capote drove the vehicle, Jokisha saw they approached an area where other people were. It was at that moment when she decided to take her chances 
and escaped through a window of Capote's car. She ran to a parked car begging for help, and thankfully, she was indeed helped. I guess Jokisha's bold escape spooked Capote because I wasn't able to find any sources that mention he attempted to stop her. Instead of pursuing her, he bailed when it was clear Jokisha made it to safety. Shout out to the good person or people who helped her during that desperate time of need. It was so brave of them. In fact, everyone was lucky that Capote hit the road instead of bringing the violence to them too. Thankfully, Jokisha was able to get in touch with the police, and after giving her statement, officers immediately issued four warrants for Capote. He was then wanted for rape, aggravated sexual assault, armed robbery, and kidnapping and false imprisonment. Unfortunately, more than a year would go by before Capote would be arrested. So moving ahead three months to the investigation of Jokisha's murder, You can understand why friends and family said she feared for her life. It's never been reported in the media that Jokisha received threats from or even was contacted by Capote again. But as I mentioned earlier, she was very vocal about her fear and was anxious as each day passed. Whether he was in contact with her or not, it's obvious why Capote was considered a person of interest in her murder right away. Now, depending on the source, he's also referred to as a suspect. Keep in mind that a person of interest and a suspect aren't synonymous. If someone is considered a person of interest, that just means that police want to talk to the individual because they believe the person has information related to the crime investigated. A suspect is defined by dictionary.law.com as, quote, the person law enforcement officers believe most probably committed a crime being investigated, end quote. Regardless of the technical term used, police wanted to talk to Capote, but he was MIA. Jukisha was laid to rest on Saturday, July 9th, surrounded by all the people who truly loved and cherished her. But time continued, and people slowly began to move on. Sadly, the investigation into her murder began to grow cold. Without being able to speak to Capote and no new leads, investigators were stuck. They were able to broadcast in surrounding counties and states that they were looking for a rapist on the run. But even with that effort, Capote was still nowhere to be seen until almost a year to the day after Jokisha's brutal attack. On April 18th, 2017, Alfredo Capote was arrested in Oil City, Louisiana for a counterfeit check operation of all things. Random, right? As news of his arrest spread like wildfire, the seriousness of his financial crimes became known. Turns out that this dude and others had been under the surveillance of the financial crimes detectives based out of the Cato Shreveport Police Department. According to an April 20th news article published by Shreveport Times, quote, Capote was originally booked at the Cato Correctional Center for being an out-of-state fugitive and an in-state fugitive, end quote. However, by the time it was all said and done, two counts of device fraud and two counts more of forgery charges were added. So instead of lying low after his assault on Jokisha and her son, this man ran to Louisiana where he thought it was a great idea to dive headfirst into financial crime. 
Of course, the more I think about this case, the more it makes sense. If you recall, when he orchestrated the invasion of Jokisha's home, he was desperate for money. I guess that desperation eventually led to the litany of financial crimes law enforcement threw at him. However, financial crimes appear to be his preferred crime. This guy has a documented history of financial crimes going back to 2015, when he was hit with a 35-count indictment for wire fraud and the selling of stolen or fraudulently owned cell phones from all the major telecommunications players. I'm talking T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and Apple. He was arrested the following month in October 2015. Now, The government did their due diligence based on months of investigation and petitioned the court to detain Capote because he was considered a flight risk. They just knew that given the opportunity to run, he would. Well, the court didn't agree and instead granted Capote with a conditional release. One of those conditions was that he wasn't allowed to leave the Northern District of Georgia, which includes Cobb County and Gwinnett County, where the rape and other charges were later issued. So basically, he was confined to northern Georgia, which isn't exactly ideal when you're an interstate criminal. So what did Capote do? Well, he asked the court to relax those restrictions even more. According to the public court records I could access, only part of his request was granted, while part was denied. Unfortunately, I was unable to confirm which parts were granted and denied. However, I do know that Capote absconded on the court order. And can you take a guess when he was making all these moves? April 2016, the exact month when he attacked Jokisha and Jack. So now we know why he absconded on that order. He went on the run to Louisiana, where his financial crimes eventually caught up with him. Listen. This dude has so many pages of legalese on Beyonce's internet that we could literally be here all day and night going through that stuff. But I will spare us all from that particular rabbit hole of fuckery. I will say, though, that my mind continues to go back to the court's decision to be lenient on Capote. I can't help but wonder if Jokisha would still be alive if the judge hadn't decided to release him. I mean, let's think about it for a minute. There's really only one person who had any motive to kill Jokisha, right? After her rape and brave statement to the police, I'm sure in his small mind, Capote was on the run because of her and not his own criminal behavior. If he hadn't raped and killed her, then she wouldn't have had a reason to file a report against him. Thus, she'd likely still be alive, assuming her murder was a hit related to Capote, that is. And believe me, I know the coulda, shoulda, wouldas aren't particularly helpful, but Jokisha's son, family, and friends lost a most beloved and beautiful person. It just seems like the system failed. And I know it's a catch-22. On one hand, we want to see judges take it easy on Black criminals for nonviolent offenses. I mean, considering how many Black bodies populate our prisons now, we need that type of leniency, no doubt. It's just... It's so shitty that this dude had to ruin it for the next person who won't run, who won't rape, and potentially hire for murder. When you look at the big picture, it really is just all bad. From what I have been able to find out, Jokisha's case is still unsolved. I wasn't able to find any recent records showing that Capote was formally charged 
with involvement of her murder, nor have there been any reports of what interviews, if conducted, have yielded about his possible involvement in her murder. I can only assume that similarly to Bridget Shields' murder case, the district attorney isn't pressed to pursue a conviction because Capote was already in prison for a long time due to his other crimes. Now, like I said, this is only an assumption. At the end of the day, Jokisha and her family deserve justice for her brutal murder. And to this day, they still don't have it. In closing, we again see evidence of someone who did the quote-unquote right thing. Jokisha eventually got out of her abusive relationship, only to still be victimized by the man. Even after that, she was brave and filed a police report, even though surely she knew that could potentially paint a target on her back. She did it anyway because it was her right, and it's what should have been done. So again, For those of us out there who still nurture the mindset of simply leaving an abusive relationship and all will be well, I suggest you think again and add a little compassion in the mix. Because the Lord knows it sure as hell ain't easy. And oftentimes an abuse victim is still at extreme risk. As always, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, I encourage you to reach out to professionals who can help. Ujima, an organization focused on domestic violence in the Black community, is committed to doing this work by us and for us. Call them at 844-778-5462. You can also reach out to loveisrespect.org where they especially focus on intimate partner violence and can offer resources that may help. And last, but definitely not least, the Oldie But Goodie National Domestic Violence Hotline with over 25 years of focused time and pioneering in this field. They can be reached at thehotline.org or 1-800-799-7233. Per the usual, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to follow and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. Also, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Misogynoir Murders. That's M-I-S-O-G-Y-N-O-I-R. This episode was written and produced by Renetta Rideout.